I'm curious, how, how many of you have a strong recollection of your third grade teacher? Okay, put your hand up. All our campuses. Okay. My third grade teacher, Mrs. Schneider, really stands out in my memory, and that's because uh, up to that point in my life, she was the first teacher who seemed to favor boys as much as girls. Now, up to that point, now I'm eight years old at the time, I'd had a kindergarten teacher, a first grade teacher, a second grade teacher, and they, they all seemed to like girls more than boys. And we boys, we got it. You know, we understood. We understood why they liked the girls. You know, it was because of the fights that we had on the playground and the spit wads we shot in the classroom, the words that came out of our mouths that shouldn't have, the fact that we never raised our hands, we just blurted things out, we didn't wear the cutesy little outfits that the girls wore. So you know, we got it, teachers like girls better than boys, but not Mrs. Schneider. She seemed to like boys as much as girls. No favoritism. And that's our topic today, favoritism. So if you brought a Bible, turn to James chapter 2. Uh, James chapter 2, get the outline from your program so you could fill it in as God speaks to you today. Uh, this is the fourth installment in a 12-part series. We're working through the New Testament epistle of James verse by verse. We're calling the series Faith That Makes a Difference because James teaches in this New Testament, New Testament epistle that if you've got genuine faith, okay, if it's the real thing, it's going to make a difference in your life. And if it's making a difference in your life, then you're going to you're going to make a huge difference in the lives of other people. Now, if you want to make a difference in others' lives, you've got, you got to start with avoiding favoritism, and that's our topic today, the foolishness of favoritism, a study of James 2, verses 1 to 13. Why is favoritism so foolish? Well, that's what we're going to learn today. And we begin with the opening verse of James 2, verse 1. This is James' introduction to the topic. Let me read it to you. He says, My brothers and sisters... Believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Stop right there. J James sets the stage for his presentation of, of the foolishness of favoritism with this opening verse. And he does it by reminding us of who we are. Now, who are we? Well, if we're followers of Jesus Christ, if we've surrendered our lives to Jesus, if he's the Savior and the King of our lives... There are two aspects of our identity that James wants to park on for a moment here because you know, they'll, they'll impact the way we do or don't do favoritism. Okay, the, the first is the expression brothers and sisters. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're part of this family of brothers and sisters. Again, as I'm watching Tira's video, I'm thinking to myself not only how different we are, the thing that really moved me. You know, I, I saw that video even before we showed it in our services, and from the get-go, it brought tears to my eyes. I was moved by it because I'm thinking, that's my sister. You know, we're, we're part of the same fam. And, and James brings that up because that, that bears on whether or not we do favoritism. Okay, if you, if you see one another as part of the same family, there's just no room for favoritism. The other thing he says about our identity is that we're believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Now, interestingly, there are only two times in the entire epistle of James where he mentions Jesus by name, and this is one of them. Why? Why does he focus on our glorious Lord Jesus Christ before he starts denouncing favoritism? Because James knows that our tendency toward favoritism is, is fueled by our, our focusing on certain human traits that, you know, that we think are really cool. 
You know, people make it onto our cool list. Why? Well, because they have the same color skin that we have. Or because they make a lot of money. Or because they could slam dunk a basketball or sink a 20-foot putt. And James would say, really? I mean, like, that's it? You're so focused on the glory of people, which is small potatoes, when you should be focused on the splendor of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Once you encounter Jesus and all his glory, the glory of people is not such a big deal. You with me so far? Okay, that's his introduction. Now, go to verse 2. Before James gives us three directives that are going to help us avoid favoritism, he describes to us a hypothetical case of favoritism. Okay, this is what favoritism looks like. Beginning at verse 2, he says, suppose a man comes into your meeting. Okay, he's saying, suppose this guy arrives at a weekend service at Christ Community Church, one of our four campuses. Okay, this dude walks into the back of the auditorium. He comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. I I love the description in the original Greek of this text. It's not wearing a gold ring. It's a man comes in who is gold-fingered. Don't you like that? Now, it kind of intimates, not the guy from the James Bond movie, it kind of intimates not that he's wearing one ring, but that he's got a ring on every finger. And we know that in ancient times, rings were a sign of wealth. In fact, in ancient Rome, they had shops where you could go and rent a ring or multiple rings for special occasions. So, you know, you're going to prom, you don't rent a tux or a prom dress, you, you rent rings, to show off. So this dude comes in wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and then a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. So this poor guy, it's probably his own only outfit, friends. It's probably what he wears to work all week long. He's a laborer, and he shows up for the weekend service, and he's got, he doesn't have another set of clothes to put on. He just wears the clothes that he's been wearing all week long. Verse 3, if you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and you say, hey, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, uh, stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James says this is what favoritism looks like. You give preferential treatment to people you think are cool, and and you ignore, you know, you treat dismissively people you think are not so cool. And I want you to note carefully what James says about this sort of behavior in the closing verse of the intro, verse 4. He does not say, come on, friends, favoritism is, uh, you know, it's bad manners. I mean, it's just not nice, so let's not play that game. James uses much stronger language than that. Look at verse 4. He calls favoritism discriminatory. Have you not discriminated? He calls it judgmental. You become judges. He calls it evil. You're people with evil thoughts. Favoritism's discriminatory, judgmental, evil. That's strong language. So how do we avoid favoritism? James gives us three directives. Write these down. Number one, use God's standards. Okay? When you're assessing other people, use God's standards. Now, there's a beautiful story to illustrate this in the Old Testament, the book of 1 Samuel chapter 16. Uh, Israel has a dysfunctional king at the time. It's their first king, King Saul. He turns out to be wicked, and God decides, uh, we got to get rid of this guy. we got to replace him. And so he calls on his prophet Samuel 
to go to a village called Bethlehem to the house of a guy named Jesse who's got multiple sons because one of those sons is destined to be Israel's next king. So Samuel plugs in the information into his GPS and he, he goes to Bethlehem, finds his way to Jesse's house, tells Jesse what it's all about. Jesse lines up seven sons, oldest to youngest. And, and Samuel's looking over these guys. It's like the NFL draft, if you were watching that this week on Sports News. Okay, so he's looking at the first guy, Eliab, and the dude just looks kingly. I mean, he's tall, he's handsome, broad-shouldered, obviously works out at the gym a lot. And Samuel's thinking to himself, this has got to be Israel's next king. This is the guy. And God immediately rebukes Samuel's knee-jerk assessment of Eliab. He says, don't look at appearances, Samuel. People look at outward appearance, but God looks at what? The heart. You know that one. God looks at the heart. So Samuel moves on to son number two, son number three, right on down the list. Nobody passes muster. So he says to Jesse, he says, do you have any other sons, perchance? And Jesse says, well, there's the runt of the litter. There's little Davy. Uh, we keep him outside with the sheep, kind of a menial task in that day. But I could bring him in, and Samuel says, bring him in. And the minute David walks in the room, God whispers in Samuel's ear, this is the one. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, people look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Favoritism is based upon people's outward appearance. What are some of the externals that cause us to place a high value on certain people? Their wealth, you know, common interests that they share with us. We, we like them because we, we both like sports or we, you know, we both like dogs or classical music or whatever. Political views, okay, they hold my political views. Attractiveness, they're in good shape, they wear cool clothes. Age, they're not too young and immature, not too old and over the hill. Talents that we admire, their popularity with other people. But, but these are the wrong standards to use when sizing up people. Favoritism focuses on the outside while God looks at the inside. God looks at the heart. Go back to James 2. You remember James' description of the two guys who showed up for church, one rich, one poor. Let's start with the poor guy. What did most people see in that church, in the auditorium of Christ Community Church, when the poor guy walked in? What did they see? Come on, call it out. His clothes, his shabby clothes, old clothes. What did God see? We're going to take a look at that. Look at verse 5. This is what God saw. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world? Now listen. To be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor. So what did God see when he looked at this poor guy? James mentions a couple of things. First, God saw somebody who was likely to be rich in faith. Underline that. Poor people have this tendency to be rich in faith. Why is that? What's the connection between poverty and faith? Well, throughout the Bible, being poor and being humble are often associated, and humility is the prerequisite for faith in God. Stop and think about it for a moment. See, it takes humility to recognize your sinfulness and your need for God's forgiveness. 
If you're not humble, you'll never recognize that. It, it takes humility to acknowledge that you can't save yourself, that no amount of do-gooding is ever going to counterbalance the scales. It takes humility to surrender to Jesus Christ as Savior, to call on a Savior, and also a Lord, Master, Boss. And so poor people who have this tendency to be humble often leads them to faith in Christ, whereas wealthy people who have a tendency to be prideful in all the stuff that they've managed to accrue, it often leads to faith in self. So what else does God see beneath the surface? He sees the poor guy who's likely to become rich in faith. What else does he see about him? He sees a guy who, because of his faith, will eventually inherit a place in God's eternal kingdom. You see that at the close of verse 5? Inherit God's kingdom. That means, now don't miss this, that means that in reality the poor guy is wealthier than the rich guy. You get that? The poor guy is wealthier in reality than the rich guy because the rich guy's riches are passing away. They're temporal. The poor guy's riches are eternal. He's going to inherit the kingdom of God. He's going to make Bill Gates look like a peasant for all eternity. Isn't this an interesting thought? When we're evaluating other people on the basis of their coolness, we might want to ask ourselves the question, yeah, but is it temporal coolness that passes away with time? Or is it eternal coolness? Is it something that's going to impact this person for forever? When I was in high school, I was part of a... a, a really great music program. It had a stellar reputation both in the high school and the community at large. Uh, it was directed by a guy probably late 20s, which is you know, why we all flocked to him. Big burly guy. He recruited a 120 voice choir and many of the guys in the choir were athletes, which is something that doesn't always happen in a high school music program. But because of this director, I mean guys just, guys were, were attracted to him. He was, he was an impressive sort of dude. So uh, I happened to sing in a choir, but I was also selected. I tried out for, I made a select group within the choir, a group of 20 people who did, oh, 30, 40 concerts a year. We sang at grade schools and at nursing homes and at banquets and, and you name it. We were there singing. We were the coolest students in this really cool music program. You with me? All right. Well, one day we're on a choir tour. Our, our choir toured a lot. When we went to state competitions, we always walked away with first place and everything. So we're on this choir tour tour and we're eating dinner in the banquet room of a hotel where we're staying and I'm sitting with my cool friends the friends who are part of the smaller ensemble and I look across the room and sitting by himself at another table is my old friend Gary now just a little background on Gary here yeah Gary used to be my friends before I started hanging out with the really cool kids Okay, Gary was rather short. Gary had really thick glasses, bad acne, struggled with, um, with diabetes, tried to be an athlete. He was a wrestler, wasn't a very good wrestler, lost most of his meats. Gary's sitting over there by himself, not a really cool guy in the eyes of most high school students, but cool in God's eyes. 
And inadvertently, ironically, I actually had something to do with that. So when I was a high school student, I claimed to be a Christ follower, but the truth is I didn't walk the talk. But Gary knew of my claim, and so he came to me one day in the hallway at school, and he said, hey, I want to begin a relationship with God, and I'm not sure where to get started. Can you tell me? And so as a brush-off, because I really didn't want to be seen with Gary, I pulled out a little booklet I carried around, much like the little blue booklet at Christ Community Church that explains how to begin a relationship with God through faith in Christ. And I said, here, read this, and I walked away. So this is a Friday afternoon. On Monday morning, Gary sees me in the hall again. He comes up and he goes, hey, now what? And I said, now what, what? And he says, well, I took the little booklet home and I read it through, made a lot of sense to me. And I came to that last page of the prayer. I prayed that prayer. I surrendered my life to Christ. So now what? So I I bought Gary a New Testament. I thought, you know, this is one way to get rid of him. It'll take longer to read the New Testament. So, you know, I said, here. Here's something more to read. Now, this is the full story of Jesus. And and then it goes on, and there are some additional books that will tell you what he expects of his followers and and all that. So barely a week later, Gary comes up to me again in the hallway, busy hallway at school, and he says, so now what? I say, now what, what? And he says, well, I read it. You read the entire New Testament? He goes, oh, I read it three times. He said, this is really good stuff. He said, this is changing my life. Now, this is the guy on the choir tour who's sitting at a table by himself while I'm hanging out with the COC, you know, the coolest of the cool. And the reason that's indelibly etched on my memory is because I think it was the first time in my life when the thought occurred to me, maybe I'm using the wrong standard for assessing coolness. Maybe Gary is more cool in God's eyes than the cool friends I'm hanging out with. I got up from my table that night and I walked over and I sat down with Gary and rekindled our friendship. See, one of the the ways to avoid the foolishness of favoritism is to use God's standards when you're assessing people. What, What does God see? Maybe some of the people that you're so quick to ignore, maybe some of the people you're so quick to walk by, to treat dismissively, maybe they're really cool in God's eyes, like my friend Gary, or like the poor guy in James' illustration. And at the other end of the spectrum, maybe some of the people you're so quick to admire, the people you're so quick to suck up to, maybe they're not cool in God's eyes, like the rich man in James' illustration. Go back to James 2. I want you to pick it up at the second line in verse 6. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the holy name, the noble name of him to whom you belong? Now, when the rich guy walked into church, what did most people see? What did they see? They saw the ring, rings on his fingers, designer jeans on on his whatever, Ushers scrambling to help him find the best seat in the house. That's what they saw. What did God see according to the verses I just read? God saw a guy who was greedy, who would haul you into court at the slightest provocation to squeeze whatever money he could out of you. God saw a guy who was irreverent, who would blaspheme God's name, who would use God's name as an expletive. 
who no doubt disdained people of faith and their values. And James would ask us, and this is the kind of guy you think is cool? You know, the in crowd that you so desperately want to be part of at school or at, or, or at work, aren't these the same people, some, some of whom get wasted at parties or who sleep around or who cuss like sailors? The sports star whose jersey you wear while you're cheering him on, isn't, isn't this the dude who's always renegotiating his salary for more ginormous sums of money? Or the guy who has a reputation for womanizing? Or, or who thinks the universe revolves around him because he could catch a football or whatever? James says, and this is your standard for coolness? And and what are the people you tend to favor? What do they think about God? Or does that not even matter to you? Who who cares what they think about God as long as they're popular or they're successful or good-looking or fun-loving or into sports or Republicans or, or lead a good band or are a great actor? Please keep in mind that James has already warned us favoritism is evil. So if you want to avoid this evil, begin by using God's standards when assessing people. You get it? Good. Number two, keep God's law. Pick it up at verse 8. Let me continue reading. He says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you don't commit adultery but you do commit murder, you've become a lawbreaker. So go back to verse 8. James refers to the royal law that's found in Scripture. If you've got your own Bible, circle that royal law. That's the theme of this paragraph. What is that royal law? How does James define it? What is it? Okay, no, that's not like rhetorical. So at all four of our campuses, what is the royal law of God as defined here? Good. Love your neighbor as yourself. Why is it called the royal law? See, it's it's nowhere referred to the royal as the royal law anywhere else in Scripture. So James is kind of coining a term here. And Bible scholars speculate, well, one of the reasons may be because it's one of the most important commandments. It's supreme. I mean, think of the occasion when Jesus was asked, Jesus, we got all sorts of commands in, in our Old Testament here. Which is the most important? Which is the greatest? And Jesus said, well, number one is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And number two is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. So maybe that's why James calls it the royal law. It's most important. It's supreme. Top of the list. Or... Scholars speculate maybe it's because this law is a lesson that Jesus frequently taught. Love your neighbor as yourself. It came, listen, it came from the lips of King Jesus. That's what made it royal. So if you don't obey this law, what you're you're, you're doing is rebelling against this sovereign ruler, King Jesus. On one occasion when Jesus was teaching about the royal law, Love your neighbor as yourself. Somebody in the crowd called out, probably somewhat cynically, and who is my neighbor? 
No doubt this guy thought, you know, if we can just define the term neighbor very narrowly, then this law shouldn't be too hard to obey. See, if neighbor means the guy who lives in the house on the right side of me and the house on the left, and that's it, you know, I could learn how to love two guys. I could do that. Remember how Jesus answers the question, who is my neighbor? He doesn't give a direct answer. He tells a story. He tells a parable. We know it as the parable of the Good Samaritan. Great guess. That's what it is. The the story of the Good Samaritan, the guy who's going down the road one day and sees this dude that's been rolled into the ditch and he's beat up, stripped of his clothes, his money, everything, and so he attends to his medical needs and then he puts him on his donkey and takes him to a hotel and pays for his overnight accommodations. Jesus says, you want to know what a neighbor is? A neighbor is anybody we come across who needs us. You want to know who a neighbor is? A neighbor is anybody whom we could benefit in some way. So instead of showing favoritism, which is demonstrating concern for whom? For people you like. Instead of showing favoritism, we're to love, we're to care for everyone we come into contact with. We're to keep the royal law. Keep the royal law. Dan Cathy kept the royal law. Ever heard of Dan Cathy? He's the president, the COO of Chick-fil-A. You ever heard of Chick-fil-A? Yeah. Chick-fil-A just came to my neighborhood in Batavia. <laughs> All right. So the story I came across was about Dan Cathy's interaction with a friend named Shane Winmar. How many of you have heard of Shane Winmar? I didn't think so. Shane is a 40-year-old gay guy who's an activist. He is the founder and the executive director of Campus Pride. Campus Pride is the largest uh, LGBT organization on college campuses across the country. And about a year ago, they led a campaign against Chick-fil-A. And that's because Chick-fil-A is known for giving millions of dollars away to charity every year to groups that support family values, family values that are often antithetical to gay values. So Shane and his organization, they're leading a charge against Chick-fil-A. Well, one day Shane's phone rings, and it's Dan Cathy on the other end of the line. Now, he, he assumes immediately he's about to get reamed out by the president of Chick-fil-A, but instead Dan Cathy says, hey, the reason I'm calling is I'd like to begin a friendship. And now Shane is really suspicious. Like, what does this guy want? But they talk for over an hour on the phone. And that's only the first of many conversations. Over the next several months, they connect by email, by text messages, uh, in-person in encounters with each other, and their friendship begins to grow. In fact, Shane writes an article in the Huffington Post about this budding friendship, and I want you to see what he has to say about Dan Cathy. He says, throughout the conversations, Dan expressed a sincere interest in my life. He wanted to know about where I grew up, my faith, my family, even my husband, Tommy. And in return, I learned about his wife and kids and gained an appreciation for his devout belief in Jesus Christ and his commitment to being a follower of Christ more than just a Christian. Dan expressed sincere regret and genuine sadness when he heard of gay people being treated unkindly, but he offered no apologies for his genuine beliefs about marriage. You see what's going on here? You see the balance represented here? Shane says, as far as I can tell, this is a guy who sincerely likes me. And, and yet I know his beliefs differ from mine. 
Dan Cathy hadn't sacrificed his Christian convictions. As Shane well knew, Dan Cathy still held, still holds a biblical view of marriage. That it's one guy, one woman for life. And yet holding that biblical belief somehow did not prevent Dan Cathy from keeping the royal law. To love Shane as his neighbor. To love him as, his, as himself. What's really interesting, the article that Shane wrote, you know what he, he entitles it? My coming out as a friend of Dan Cathy and Chick-fil-A. <laughs> Isn't that great? And the article's accompanied by a picture. It's a picture of, of Shane with Dan at the Chick-fil-A bowl game on New Year's Eve where Shane was a special honored guest of Dan Cathy. Now you say, well, that was a very nice thing to do for Dan to befriend Shane like that. And it was nice. But I think James would say that was a, a very obedient thing for Dan to do. Because you see, loving my neighbor as myself, whoever that person is, no favoritism allowed is the royal law. It's what King Jesus commands. And failure to keep the royal law is not just a minor oversight, it's a sin. Look again at verse 9. James says, but if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. And then he goes on to say in the verses I read to you a moment ago, verses 10 and 11, he says, and don't, don't try to dismiss your, your, your disobedience to this law as, well, it's not a really important law. This love your neighbor as yourself. It's not a big deal. It's not like disobeying the law, don't commit adultery or don't murder. What does James say? James says, hey, law breaking is law breaking. And what makes it serious business is not the importance of the law itself, but the God whose law it is. So when you practice favoritism, what, what, what you're doing is trifling with God who's given you this royal law. And that's not a good thing to do, which moves us to our third and final directive. How do you avoid favoritism? Number one, you use God's standards when assessing people. Number two, you keep God's law, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. Number three, you fear God's judgment. Go back to the text one last time, verses 12 and 13. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who's not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So as James talks about God's judgment against favoritism in the closing verses of our passage here in, in James 2, he gives us a warning and a role model. Okay, let's start with the, the warning. The warning is this. Let me sum it up for you, and you might want to jot this down because of its importance. The warning is God is going to judge every one of us on the basis of how well we've kept the royal law. God is going to judge every one of us on the basis of how well we've kept the royal law. Now, James calls it in verse 12, the law that gives freedom, but he's still talking about that law, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the yardstick, he says, or at least one of the yardsticks that God is going to use to measure our lives. Now, if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, I've got bad news for you. Your failure to obey the royal law, something we're all guilty of, is just one of many sins that the Bible says one day God will judge because God 
is both loving and just and holy and righteous. And the judgment against our sins, Scripture says, is death. Eternal death. The wages of sin is death. Romans 6, verse 23. You, you defy the God of life, and the penalty is death. And this is why I, I appeal to you, if you've never done it before, surrender your life to Jesus Christ, because Jesus was willing to take your death in your place, your punishment, which you deserved for your many sins, including your failure to obey the royal law of loving your neighbor as yourself. Jesus died in your place. If you'll put your hope and trust in him, you could be forgiven. However, even if you are a Christ follower, even if God has forgiven you, thanks to Jesus taking the punishment you deserve, you still will be judged by God on the basis of how well you've obeyed this royal law. Now, it's, it's, it's not a judgment that will lead to eternal condemnation because Jesus has already paid for that on your behalf. But it's a judgment, now listen, it's a judgment that will lead to the loss of some of the eternal reward that God had in store for you. This is how the Apostle Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. And by the way, Paul is writing this not to unbelievers. He's writing this to Christ followers, and he says, For we, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Who must appear before the judgment seat of Christ? All, all so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done in the body, while in the body, whether good or bad. So the good, doing things like keeping the royal law, loving others as you would love yourself, you're going to be rewarded for. But bad will also be rewarded. Favoritism. Failure to keep the royal law. Loving people as you love yourself. Now again, this judgment for Christ followers, it's not going to result in eternal life or death. Jesus has settled that for us. But it will result in eternal reward either being gained or being lost. That's what James is saying in the closing verses of today's text. God's judgment against favoritism is something to look out for. Now just a footnote to this point. There's the possibility that when James speaks here of God's judgment against favoritism, he has in mind not simply the ultimate judgment at the end of time, but also the negative repercussions that we frequently experience in this life when we fail to obey God. Now, we've all experienced this, negative repercussions. When, when we sin, oftentimes bad things happen, and th that too, as God allows it, is part of his judgment on sin. Let me tell you a story in, in this regard uh, respecting the sin of favoritism. This past year, I asked my men's community group to go through the book of James with me. I said, we're going to do a sermon series on James, and you guys can help me out. We can do the background work on it. So during the winter months, we studied James. And when we came to chapter 2, favoritism, I asked the guys as an icebreaker one early Wednesday morning, I said, have any of you ever been on the receiving end of discrimination? Yeah, several hands went up, and I asked one of the guys, hey, so tell us your story. Now, this friend of mine is Filipino, but he also happens to be the owner of three car dealerships, fairly successful business guy. So he tells the story of starting out in business as a lowly salesman, working for a guy who was a bigot, a guy who called him every racial slur under the sun. His favorite was Chinaman. 
which my friend got a uh, you know, kick out of because the bigot obviously ignorantly thought that every Asian is Chinese, which is often the case with bigotry. It's pretty stupid. Okay. So one day my friend writes his first order, sells his first car, spends about an hour filling out all the paperwork, all the details, brings it in to this finance manager, Mr. Bigot, and he gives it to him. Big grin on his face. And Mr. Bigot looks at it over and he notices one small mistake, something he hadn't filled out. And he says, Chinaman, I'm going to do you a favor. I'm going to teach you a lesson you'll never forget. And he rips it up, throws it out his office window and says, go do it again. Fast forward three years. My friend has now climbed through the ranks and he's the general manager of a car company. And Mr. Bigot, he's lost his job doing finance managing. He's out pounding the pavement, selling automotive whatever, and he shows up at the company where my friend is the general manager. And he says, I need to see the general manager. (laughs) And so he's ushered into the office of guess who? Chinaman! (laughs) Now that's judgment. That, that, that's not judgment in the eternal sense. That's judgment in the sense of, you know, what goes around comes around. It's kind of the way God often works it, allows us to experience the repercussions of our foolish behaviors. If you show favoritism to people, if you suck up to people you like and you discriminate against those you don't, it's going to come back and bite you. Well, that's James' warning. Judgment. Ultimate judgment even in the short-term judgment. Now he switches to a discussion in the closing phrases of the role model. And the role model is inferred from the closing line of the verses I just read to you. The role model is God himself. Look at the closing line of verse 13. James says, Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. God's the role model in this regard. Friends, none of us should be on God's list of favorites. I want to say that again because it's so profound, you really need to let it sink in. None of us should be on God's list of favorites. You should not be on God's list of favorites. I should not be on God's list of favorites. What we all deserve because of our sin is God's judgment. But thankfully, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son who took our judgment in his body on the cross, who paid the penalty we deserve to pay. Aren't you glad that God so loved the world? God loved black as well as white and every color in between. God loved popular as well as wallflower, educated as well as uneducated, good-looking as well as homely, Republican as well as Democrat, Cubs fan as well as... (laughs) As well as Sox fan. Athlete as well as computer geek. I mean, God so loved the world without any hint of favoritism that he gave his one and only son. That's mercy. And James says, thank God, because mercy triumphs over the judgment we deserve. And he's asking us, so are you following in the footsteps of your role model? Are you known for mercy? Or are you known for judgmental favoritism? Avoid the favoritism. Use God's standards. 
when you're assessing people. Keep God's law, the royal love. Love your neighbor as yourself, the royal law. Fear God's judgment. Let me pray for you. Uh, God, I just would ask that those of us who need to take that first step, you'd give us the boldness, the humility we talked about, you know, that the poor guy in James' illustration had to say, I surrender to Christ. I can't save myself. I'm a sinner who needs to be forgiven. God, let that prayer come from our hearts right now. And then, Father, for every one of us, may this sermon that we listen to from James, may it cause us to leave this place looking at people through whole, wholly different eyes. If we're headed out to lunch right now at some local restaurant, may the way that we uh, treat the hostess, the waitress, whomever, God, may it be because we see them with different eyes, having been in your word. Same with the people we work with, our neighbors, folks we go to school with. Let this, this message from James to change our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. amen.